Hello, Silkies. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of D podcast. Joining me today is Adila Coker. And Adila is someone who I just clicked with instantly. I'm not sure if it's because both of us go by D or we both have an interest in fashion and we both get fired up about sustainability and ethical fashion and what the heck does any of that even mean. But I really am excited to launch this episode because I think she just has a lot of wisdom to share. For those of you who don't know, this podcast is sponsored by Conceptual Event Society. Conceptual Event Society is a PR agency that helps with event planning, social media, public relations. Basically, in this podcast episode today, you're going to learn a lot about getting a product made, but you need Conceptual Event Society once you have that product made. Jessica will hook you up with getting your clothing on big profile, high profile names on TV. She'll help you with a social media strategy, content creation calendar, everything you need to make your brand a success. She is so supportive of the fashion industry and the arts in Toronto. And honestly, she has helped me so much in the short time that we've worked together. Check her out on Instagram at Conceptual Events Society. Without further ado, Without further ado, that sounded weird in my head just then, but that was normal. Without further ado, check out this week's episode. I feel like there's going to be a lot of editing in this. <laughs> Wait, can you like swear on this? Yeah. It's like two artists trying to figure out technology. What were we thinking? <laughs> Adila Kokar is a media-acclaimed, award-winning serial entrepreneur and author of the recently released book, Source My Garment, The Insider's Guide to Responsible Offshore Manufacturing. She has over a decade of experience working closely with offshore factories and partnering with building businesses within the fashion industry. Her expertise includes sustainable product development, offshore manufacturing processes, end-to-end management, and business strategy. Prior to funding Source My Garment, Adila found, I always want to say Adila, I know it's a, it's a, I said it right, Adila. (laughs) Adila founded two other apparel companies, Short Stock Children's Wear Inc., nominated by Earnshows Magazine for Most Innovative Company, and Pure Blanks Organic Fashion, listed as a top 40 innovator by Apparel Magazine. She holds a degree in fashion design and technology and has been featured in Apparel Magazine, Sourcing Journal, Women's Wear Daily, JustStyle.com, and more. I am so excited to have you here today. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much. Of course. We're going to talk about so much. I want to talk to you about the process of writing a book because you just launched a book and then we'll talk more about the content the guts of your book so like the actual manufacturing and sourcing and all that stuff I'm about halfway done your book right now I tried so hard to finish it before it's it's a lot in there (laughs) it's a lot in there but we'll kind of break it up into those two categories because I know a lot of people that listen um, to the podcast are freelancers and entrepreneurs and I know for sure I have some writers that listen as well so I know they'll be super into this so Adila thank you so much for coming Thank you for having me. So like I said, I want to talk to you about writing a book because you told me that it cost you like $20,000 or something. So if you could talk about what inspired you to write a book and then and then like the whole process, because I think there's a lot of people that have the idea to write a book, but they don't actually know what goes into writing a book. So what first inspired you to write Source My Garment? 
Sure. Well, actually, the cost probably wasn't about 20000 I would say it was about half of that. And yeah, something I didn't realize is that it kind of adds up just as it, you go along. The whole process took me about four years to uh, complete. And then just working with the publisher over about six months, actually. Um, initially, the reason why I started it was um, when I was consulting, a lot of my clients had come to me and they'd ask me a lot of questions. And it was just really hard to spend all that time to really, you know, educate them about the process, how it, it works. And a lot of my clients are scared. You know, this is like you're investing a lot of money overseas and you want to know, you know, what you're what you're doing. So I kind of wrote my, the book for my clients and so many people kept asking me, well, how does it work? And I, you know, it was so hard to like answer all the questions. So I just decided to talk about my experiences and um, how it works and, you know, any of the mistakes I had just so that other can, other people can be successful offshore. Cause I know obviously, you know, you can work locally, which I, I you know, I encourage all the time, but you know, as you grow and scale, uh, I think there is a need to work offshore for you know certain types of products and yeah I can go on and on about that and to be honest with you there is no book out on offshore manufacturing how to work it's like some kind of like a hidden information and I just want more people to you know act be able to manufacture overseas because there are so many great manufacturers overseas and you know a lot of people say like oh they get worried like oh you know I'm gonna get screwed or this and that but you know what that can happen anywhere in the world I love that we're talking about this because for the past few episodes of the podcast, we've been featured or focusing a lot on sustainability and supporting local. But I think you're right. There's a time and a place that going overseas is necessary. Mm -hmm. So how do you do that ethically? And that's what your book really talks about. Um, You know, Canada is just not a manufacturing country. We're just not. We don't have the resources that other countries do. So when you go overseas, a lot of the times people that are creating your garment, their whole family has been creating garments for generations. Like some of those people that work in factories, you know, they're like fourth generation that have been working in those factories. So they are just so much faster than someone in Canada will ever be. So you can still pay people fairly. Yeah. They can just do more in an hour. So your costs are going to be less than paying someone in North America to manufacture something. And I think that's like a misconception that we have. Like you said, people think if you go overseas, it's automatically like child labor or slave labor. No, and another big misconception is is that you're going to get really cheap price points. But you know what? That only comes with volume. Mm -hmm. So like if you're talking to me like, oh, I only want to do 100 or 200 units. Well, you're not going to be saving anything. You're going to be paying exactly the same price if not even more because you're spending if you're you know shipping into Canada in apparel it's generally about 18% duties and that's huge 18% of your product so um, the only time you're going to see you know quantity breaks is like obviously when you're doing more volume you're going to save so um, I think you have to think about what are your goals like are you able to manufacture locally if not then if you're doing it overseas then kind of think about the long haul you know and like trying to grow into you know savings offshore yeah in your in your book I think you suggested don't go overseas unless you have a minimum order quantity of five to 600 units. Mm. One thing I really notice in the book is you talk a lot about the perspective of the manufacturer and you, it seems in the book like you have, it's funny because I feel very protective of Canadian makers yeah. and 
for the first time reading your book, I felt like you're very protective of the manufacturers, which was a different perspective. And yeah, yeah and, you, and you said too, you know, like they have to make it worth their while and they might take a chance on yeah. you and, and do a smaller order, but like in order for them to make any money, yeah. you have to have a certain MOQ. Yeah, so the big part of what I do is really I want to be a voice for offshore manufacturers. Like I go to India every year and I see how hard they work I see the families and nobody gets a chance to really see what I see and so it's hard to like get people to understand what's involved like you have everything from the farmer to the ginner the spitter spinner knitter dyer everybody it's not just the factory that things are happening even your trims and materials everything is happening offshore and I you know I'm so lucky that I got a chance to see and I see how hard it is and it's art it really is you know factory machines are not I mean the factory isn't run by machines it's run by people so I really want you know to educate people on the human element of that and and really like when you're working offshore sure just to remember that there's a person behind it and relationships is so key so i just finished the part in the book where you're describing the difference between knit fabrics and woven fabrics obviously as a designer mm-hmm. i have that in mind when i'm picking fabrics but i never even thought that certain manufacturers specialize in certain kinds of fabrics in terms of yes. sewing not just making the fabric but sewing yeah. and so you said that some manufacturers only deal with knit fabrics yeah. some only deal with woven yes. fabrics and so if you have a collection that has both you might have to source more than one manufacturer yes. yeah that's so important i'm so thank you for bringing that up it's so critical because you know when you're sewing silk how different that is from sewing something like denim yeah. you know they it's a totally different expertise one secondly you need a different machinery setup and they don't have you know, it costs money to have all different types of machinery. So most factories are either a knits or a woven factory and, and they're located in different regions. So like if you go south, that's all like knits there. If you go more uh, north in India, sorry, I'm just speaking mainly of India, but um, in north is all woven. So they're all kind of like, you know, just bunched into different, um, like how the type of fabric is. So yeah, definitely you have to, you know, look into that. Some do both, but it's, it is kind of rare. And similar to the different kinds of fabric, different factories focus on different notions. You know, you've got zippers, you have buttons, you have trims, you have all of these different things. Mm -hmm. And what would be your advice to a designer? Should they go to a manufacturer that already has the relationships with those vendors who create embellishments or should designers be sourcing those vendors as well oh, you have the best questions <laughs> okay so I read the book. You are I know so what to ask. Good. oh man okay so basically like there are obviously pros and cons of working offshore and locally so one thing that you really need to have when you're working offshore is you need to have patience <laughs> because one thing is is that they're doing all the legwork so it's called a, a full package factory and basically they're gonna look, look for all the trims for you and source based on you know the samples you provide they're going to find whatever they can find in the market and then they'll give you approvals whereas if you're doing it locally you're going to have to like source everything yourself so most of the factories they'll source everything for you some of my clients like if they're very specific on a type of quality of you know trim or notion we just deliver it straight to them and so it saves time and it's it, you get what you want that way I want to talk about dyeing because I do a lot of dyeing in-house For sure. and I'm hoping that you'll make it sound really fancy and hard so that people will respect more what I do. <laughs> but that's something else that, uh, that we don't think about when we're maybe buying our fabric at a store is the process of dyeing the fabric. 
Um, yeah. That's a whole other, I mean, it's still part of the fashion industry, but it's its own beast. So can you talk about maybe a little bit about the textile laws in Canada in terms of dyeing and like, can you bring a garment over that's already finished and then just dye it in Canada and then say made in Canada or like, I don't know, basically, can you just tell us any insight you have into dyeing, what's it called? Greige? Greige goods. Greige goods. Sure. So to be honest with you, all of everything that I manufacture, it's just done overseas. We just give them, you know, samples and then they basically produce it. But to be honest with you, I don't have experience with bringing grayish goods because mm-hmm. we just, you know, uh, develop the whole, the whole thing. But I can tell you dyeing is the longest process in manufacturing. Like, I kid you not. Like, uh, it would take about 30, about 30 days just to wait to get a fabric dyed. And you're sampling. Like, you ha- they have different vessels. Um, so it depends on what size of vessel you need to get the quantity you made. And usually, like, the big, large, large vessels, like you, Walmart and those guys are using them, and they don't get used as much. But the smaller, medium-sized vessels, they're always continuously being used. And um, you just have to wait in line. And then a lab dip, I'm not too familiar, are you familiar with a lab dip? So basically that's a, um, most, and generally you'd either give um, a panto number Mm -hmm. um, or like a sample of a swatch and you ask them to give you a lab dip so that you can approve the colorway. And so the, just to do one colorway takes about nine hours in a lab and it looks like a a science lab, like, yeah, the crazy mad scientist lab. And it's such a cool process, but um, yeah, dyeing is a huge part of it. And um, one thing that's very important, I guess, into sustainability is like understanding, you know, when clothing is getting washed, what happens to all these dyes? So um, there's a, lo- a lot of laws that have been passed in India the past like five years because there's so much pollution. But there, there's been a lot of regulation, and um, now there's a lot of water treatment plants, which is nice. So any of the dyes that the runoff goes into a water treatment plant is just continuously recycled. So all the dyers that I work with um, use um, water treatment plants, which is really nice. And all of the dyes that I work with are um, GOT certified, Global Organic Textile Standards. Yeah, that's the juice I wanted to know. <laughs> so what is it like when you go overseas um i think i heard you say get in line so are those manufacturers working with big companies like walmart and then they have someone come and say oh i'm just starting out i want like 500 pieces and then they're kind of just like well we'll get to you when you get to you or like how does that is it first come first serve like if i came before a walmart order would they fulfill mine first or how does that work So again, it just depends on what vessel you're using, um, how busy the dyers are, what the connections your factory has with the dyers. So, I mean, yeah, that's just pretty much how it works. You just have to wait your turn. (laughs) And it it takes a while. So again, I'm I'm not even halfway done your book yet. There's just so much knowledge in there. It's taking me a while. But one of the things that you talked about in the book was about when you first start, it does make sense to make your samples in Canada, um, to do small runs in Canada. When as a business owner, do you know when to take the leap? And is it as clear cut as, okay, I have this amount of customers that are used to spending, you know, a hundred dollars on an item that I've made. So I'm, I'm can justify 
getting 500 of the same pair of pants made or is it more like a leap of faith and you have to go overseas and make that bigger purchase order than you're used to to get your prices down so you can sell it to more people like when when is the tipping point on the scale when you when you know you're ready to go overseas okay so there's i think in the book i kind of go through a little bit of pros and cons and everybody's situation is totally different a lot of the clients come to me because they just can't find the machinery locally. I've done uh, bedding and, um, you know, shower curtains and the printing units are, the widths are so big and you can't find that locally. Um, so, I mean, if you, you can't get it manufactured locally, then you have to go for sure, go overseas. Um, another thing is you want to be careful of, obviously, is quantity. You need to move your inventory and you need to do it fast, as fast as possible. Um, so you need to really think about, you know, what's the risk you're taking. So I, I you know, as much as you can try your best to get pre-orders, you know, yeah. doesn't matter if it's consumers or businesses, you know, at least book those orders just to make sure that they're going to sell. So you're not sitting on those inventory, but yeah, that's probably two of the tips I would give. A lot of people that listen to this podcast are the makers themselves. And for me, I, I can sell other products, but selling my own, I kind of choke up. Yeah. What would be your advice to designers about the sales and distribution channels? Where should they be looking to sell their 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 things? Um, obviously, business to consumer, having an e-commerce store, that's mm-hmm. like one-on-one. That's very basic stuff. Um, or even trying to find some boutiques locally to carry your work. Also, that's pretty standard what are some ideas that you have beyond that and do you have any um, tips or tricks for approaching those small boutiques um so my background is more on the manufacturing side but from what i understand is like you know retail is dying and the malls are dying and i really think that it's really important to sell direct to consumer now just because as a designer like you want to get those you know if you're selling uh for example, if you're buying something at 10 or $15 or you're making it, you want to make enough margins to be able to accommodate, you know, your own living lifestyle. So you want to make as much as you can. So I would say go direct to consumer. And then if you can do business to business for sure. Um, but I just think to be honest with you, like you have to, don't put all your eggs in one baskets and try different things, do pop-ups, do whatever you can sponsor other events, collab, you know, work with other people. Um, I think you just have to try so many different things. It's, I think retail and, uh, I don't know, the apparel industry is going through a, a weird time. I think, I think people really, you know, are understanding sustainability and they're scared and, and, you know, and there's so many businesses and artists that, you know, want to do what they love. Now there's so many entrepreneurs coming up. So I think this is a, you know, a telling time. So I think we just have to kind of just try different things and see what works for you. The way that you answered that last question was a perfect segue into my next question. So we're really in this movement of sustainable fashion. Mm-hmm. And I complain about this all the time is that there's no real definition yeah. for sustainable fashion at this point. So it bugs me that people are throwing that word around yeah. like confetti when we don't fully understand or have a joint understanding of what sustainable fashion is. Having said that, there are different documentaries um, like Patriot Act just did an episode on fast fashion. And there seems to be a push in or towards, you know, thrifting and buying less and upcycling your clothing, which is awesome. Do you have any insight into how that is going to affect, affect makers and designers? Because on the one hand, we need to get our 
MOQs, minimum order quantities, up to hundreds of units Mm -hmm. to go overseas to get our margins good. But then on the other hand, people are being encouraged to shop less. So if people are shopping less, like is that going to affect our MOQs? For big companies, it's probably... Or, come, or I guess like for for medium-sized businesses that have that clientele built up so they can afford to buy clothing in bulk, it's probably not as risky for them. I would say big box stores are going to yeah. feel it more because people are stepping away from fast fashion. Yeah. But from the little guys that are like me that are still trying to get their foot in the door, like how do we grow so that we can maybe go overseas, but also... We're working with people already that are very conscious of this sustainable movement. Does that make, does my question make sense? Yeah, I think so. Um, so I, I guess, can I address, I guess, the word sustainability? Yeah. Um, so the way that I look at the word sustainability, it's like saying I'm stressed. Well, what does that mean when someone says they're stressed? That could mean so many different things, right? So they may be worried, they may be depressed, you know? So I, I like to use that kind of as a, Uh, you know, as a reference point, because sustainability means different things to different people. You can be sustainable, but if you're going to say that, you need to back it up so people understand what you're saying when you're sustainable. Does it mean you care about the environment? Do you care about the people? Because that, you know, that's, do you care about inclusivity? It's all of that. So, um, so I think that, you know, if you're going to say you're sustainable, you better back it up. That's kind of what my, my view on sustainability is. Um, the second part, okay, so basically, now where were we on the second part? Um, oh man, can you repeat that? Like about uh, grant, brand, you have to get your MOQs up. Oh yeah, yeah. So, okay, for startups to get their MOQ up, I mean, you can, you know, obviously work on minimums, but eventually you do want to grow and you want to scale. I think that's what every business wants to do. But if you're going to do that, then again, you need to think about sustainability. Like, how are you being sustainable? Um, I'm kind of a very pro natural fiber kind of a a gal because I, um, I'm, uh, about being fair trade certified now I you know on a recent not even a recent trip back in 2008 when I was in India there was only a small article it was I swear it was only like maybe 10 sentences about 200 farmers committing suicide and I'm like what is this and the more I came back and I you know started hearing more and more about these stories about farmers committing suicide and since 2002 over 300,000 farmers have committed suicide because of you know genetically modified seeds and and dead and just like they're not educated people trying to rip them off because cotton is a commodity it's not it's traded right and so um it's kind of like a sad situation and i think only slowly like india is really trying to do something but they're kind of like in bed with monsanto (laughs) i hate to say but um you know i think for me like fair trade certification is is really important and um yeah just that's kind of what sustainability for me is, is really about like helping people and helping be a voice for the factories overseas, creating relationships and transparency. Yeah. Well, listen, we could get into the guts of this book forever. And like I said, I'm not even halfway done. So once I finish, I'm sure I'm going to have a whole more 20 minutes worth of questions to ask you. Um, but I want to move into the the making of the book because we didn't talk about oh. that too much. So how you actually published a book that's crazy so uh silkies join us next week